Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlisle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is Jamie Powell. He's a reporter for the FT Alphaville. He's broken some really interesting stories. We're going to talk about it right after this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquirers Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquirers Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquirers Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Can you just start from really basic, explain what your job is and then explain what is unusual or what is particular about being a reporter at the, at the FT's Alphaville? Yeah, so I mean, I guess the job of a journalist is to, when someone, uh, I mean, the way I think about it is FD Alphaville is a, is a blog, um, and there are different types of journalists. There are journalists who only write opinion pieces, and they'll be the kind of brand name journalists um, you might have heard of, like a Paul Krugman is an economist who writes kind of analysis opinion pieces, and um, he sells papers based on his name. And then there are reporters, you might not know the names of them, but they're the people churning out, or maybe not churning out, right, writing very nice pieces on uh, I don't know, Chesapeake, Chesapeake's results today or Facebook's results a few weeks ago. And they'll do the 400 words that say Facebook reported earnings, the earnings per share was X, the profits were X, Mark Zuckerberg said this on the conference call, um, an analyst said this. And just to give you like, a, instead of you having to read that entire thing yourself. If you're not if you're not invested in that stock, you just want to go and update on what's going on with Facebook or in digital advertising, then they do that kind of job. Um, and they'll also do interviews with the chief executives and they'll do uh, maybe like an analysis piece, like a longer piece for the newspaper. Um, and then um, I kind of sit somewhere in between. So I report on the news, but it might not be, I don't have a defined beat. So it will be what I'm interested in, what I think is news. And also there'll be some sort of opinion and analysis thrown in there. So there'll be a news story, let's say, um, Ocado, which is a big online grocer here in the UK, um, very popular stock, reported its results and we'll have a story about that. And they beat expectations and the share price is up 5%. And I'll do a story being like, well, there's something, you know, let's actually have a look at their working capital, like the cash flow missed expectations no one receives to care but you know what's actually really going on with the hood of the business and i'll do a piece like a kind of analysis piece based on that you know maybe and often often it'll be framed as a kind of in a questioning tone um but a lot of the time it'll just be kind of like hey this is interesting like a bar con more like a bar conversation than a than a news piece and it's written like that as well it's, it's written in a way of uh, my first boss, who was Dan McCrum, who's the, the main wirecard reporter, he gave me this good rule, which is like, if you could tell your friends in a pub about it, it's probably a new story. Like, it's probably worth writing. Like, but if your friends wouldn't care, then don't write it. So, um, you know, so it should be like easy to understand. Um, and if it's technical, you should be able to explain it quite easily. Um, yeah. So um, and I guess like the job, you know, the job really boils down to, writing what you think is important and what you think is true and accurate and not kowtowing to the bombardment you get from PRs and um, 
the companies. I mean, I know in the US there's five PRs for every journalist. And I think in the UK it's three. So, you know, our, our email inboxes, I open my email every day and it's got before I wake up and there's 200 emails from people I don't know, right? With all the, all the earnings press releases, some analyst with, who I've never heard of with a comment on Beyond Meat's numbers, you know, and you're just kind of like, I don't, it, it's just, you know, so you've got to kind of really sift through that and figure out what's important. And quite often it's, I mean, very rarely do you get anything from those, but every now and then you get a nugget. But um, it's, yeah, it's, a, it's so yeah, I've, uh, there's the other rule of journalism, you know, your, your job isn't just, if someone tells you it's raining, your job isn't to write, it's raining, it's to look out the window and see whether it's raining or not, right? So I think, um, yeah, so. So the the job is to sort of find the thing that is interesting to to you and to someone who you could discuss it with in the pub. But how uh, are you sort of like who is your audience when you're in the pub? Are they other people? Are they investors? Are they analysts? Or are they just you know completely retail? You you have you no expectation of any yeah. sort of knowledge. On Alphaville, we're allowed to. I mean, this is something I. I kind of generally fight for at the FT but I think you've got to assume a bit of knowledge from your readers because you treat them like adults I mean there was a time in news journalism in, in financial news journalism where you had to explain what EBITDA was every time you typed EBITDA and in a way you're never going to learn if it's explained to you like I remember when I first got into finance reading the first finance book I ever read and I didn't know what EPS meant and I got you know I was on page 10 of it was Guy, Guy Spears book and I was on page 10 of Guy Spears' book, and he was like talking about how, you know, he moved away from Wall Street to Zurich because, you know, he was sick of just being obsessed with quarterly numbers and wanted to focus on the long, longer term investments. And I was like, what the is EPS? You know, and I had to kind of go on Google and go on, you know, uh, Investopedia and figure it out. I think sometimes it's good to have a little bit of a small, even if someone is back in what you're talking about, like, they're most likely on the internet you know, they can they can go and look and it'll take them three or four minutes and then they can recontextualize it so there is a level of assumed knowledge um and i think with some articles um i don't know some some article like i assume we know what duration mean, when i say duration what the reader will mean and um so there is some assumption of knowledge um but it's it's sometimes good to like but for instance when i'm talking about capitalizing intangible asset development then i might explain that a little bit more because unless i mean you could be a brilliant macro trader and not have a clue what that means right so it, it, you've got to judge it to that extent um but yeah it, it depends on the piece as well you know um but uh yeah a lot of the, it's a lot of time good to assume a bit of knowledge but not not to the point where they're gonna you know close the article because in the end you want them to read it so What's the difference between writing uh, a blog? So it, it, for a long time, that was a very keen distinction between writing a blog and traditional journalism, but probably mm -hmm. over the last 10 or 15 years, they've sort of converged a little bit that it might not make much difference now. But what, what in your mind is the difference between, you know, what, do you have some sort of, is it is it more casual with Alphaville than say a more traditional article yeah. in, in a paper? I think it's, um, well, I guess the kind of, the, the, you know, the blogosphere in the noughties was really where it, where it kicked off, you know, Barry Ritholtz had his blog and there were, um, um, Paul Kudrowski and there's some other famous blogs from that era. Um, and I, FT Alphaville was launched by the FT as a kind of, I'm someone's hoovering 
which be, is very quiet, but um, um, FD Alphaville was launched with the idea that um, we would be the first kind of markets blog attached to a paper. So we'd have the editorial standards of the FT, which are very high, and there's a lot of rigor going to fact-checking um, and making sure everything you say is true and running stuff by lawyers if there's going to be some legal problems potentially in a format which was that conversational tone which was fun which took the mickey a bit um, and you know you could do it and and the idea was that you could do a 200 word article taking the taking the piss out of if you or you could do a 2000 word article about what is going on MBS in 2007 and that 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 was the so you get the and no word count limit there's you can use photos so that in 2007 and since um launch and the wall street journal and you know bloomberg has now was very and i think um the av taken the need for blogs away people just do threads i always think that threads are the new blogs really on twitter um but um, i still think that the you know people like from what i know readers really enjoy ft alpha Phil and they like coming to us for something a bit different and a bit refreshing and not just your normal news speak um or a kind of and your normal tone in writing and we always try and focus on odd and different things that other people might know and what's going on and also try and be early on trends which obviously means you might be completely wrong sometimes but you know we, we wrote our first bitcoin article in 2011 right so um you know we were we were writing about like what will bitcoin be a payment system before you know when it was trading at below a dollar so um and unfortunately some of us did own some and then got rid of it so that was that's been <laughs> someone actually lost their keys as well uh it was a frantic day in the office looking for them so never found them so um but yeah no we've um so yeah we always try to be early on things sometimes that means we'll, we'll be direct, uh, uh, kind of wrong on how things will turn out but like directionally right um in terms of it becoming a larger thing and sometimes we'll just be completely off but um it's always worth thinking about what what might happen in the future so and you know and, and once it becomes a main ft story or a main news story then we'll try and find something else because everyone's writing about it you know so yeah. what, what is a uh what's a typical story what's the sort of story that you're looking for that makes a great ft alphaville story well because what about whatever we want it's um it's I've tried to build up like a, a speciality in certain topics and then that gives you the knowledge to write articles quite quickly rather than having to like learn something on the fly which I think a lot of if you're new to a beat it's quite terrifying because let's say you're the leisure correspondent at the FT and you've got to learn about how cruise liners work and that's like a lot of work like they're all domiciled in some of them are domiciled in African countries and like what are their main expenses like who are the key players like um who are their suppliers who are their customers and like that's a lot of knowledge so over my time at alpha i just try to build up knowledge about two or three things so then one of the main things i do is a kind of accounting story so kind of odd things in accounting and exploring whether a company is you know let's say massaging their numbers or presenting pro forma accounts and how that and if that's a fair depiction of reality and, and quite often with pro forma numbers it is fair right like it's sometimes fine to take a line item out of accounts and normalize them and say you know this is what the real business looks like we're, we're getting rid of this company 
that's why the numbers are a bit skewy. Like, and a lot of the time, but then, you know, that 5% of the time, there'll be something very odd going on or something might quite not make sense. Or there'll be something like, what I, I'm not going to name the company, but one thing I came up, I was looking at this company in the UK. It's a kind of tech hybrid business. And it said um, its UK sales grew 30% last year. But then in its new ESG disclosures, its energy UK energy use went down 5%. So you were kind of like, okay, well, how does that that makes absolutely no sense so um unless they've just got an incredible new energy supplier and i really need to get the name of that energy supplier so i'm paying my bill for like far lower bills um and using far less energy so um yeah um those are the kind of stories i look out for and then i like thematic stories on you know valuation and i've written a lot about the evs and SPACs and um what's been going on in the market since kind of i guess like middle of last year um, you know, all the way from Hertz through to GameStop and et cetera. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, my kind of focus equities, accounting and valuation. And, and, and so anything interesting that happens on the day about that, um, I'll, I'll write a story about um, that kind of grabs my attention. And often they can get a bit repetitive. Those stories can get a bit repetitive, especially when the market is like it is now. Like there's only so many times I can write an answer. Wow, this company's trading at 50 times EV sales and it's shrinking. You know, like that. Like I can only write that story so many times. So um, sometimes it's, it's been a few times this year where I've just sat there, like looking at my, you know, I've got a huge Yahoo Finance set up with all the companies I follow, and just looking at it being like, this is so mad that I can't just say everything is mad because that's just ridiculous. But um, but yeah, so uh, those are kind of things I focus on. But then we've got people on the team who are very good on macro. Some people are very good on financial plumbing and Bitcoin and. Like, uh, you know, if someone talked to me about how, you know, like, you know, the whole like settlement, how settlement works in, in broking, like it's, it's so complex. And like, I probably understand 10% of it, but we have someone on the team who is like, like a genius on it, right? So, and that's all, they, that's kind of things they focus on. So um, yeah, you try and build, build up a, like a kind of core understanding of a few topics and then hopefully that to you um, a great story. And, and an example this week was that, um, there was there was a um, you know uh, Messi the Barcelona player has left Barcelona um, and he's gone to Paris Saint Germain and there was a big FT story about Barcelona and uh, a lot of financial problems. They just brought they spent way too much money on a bunch of players and um, they did a transaction allegedly which they did a player swap with Juventus through an Italian club, but. Um, instead of doing a swap where it'd be player for player plus 15 million euros, they did the outright transfer costs. So it was like a 70, they said, we pay you 70 million or 75, you pay us 60. And there was no kind of player swap agreement. So it was just, but they, they happened on the same day. But what that did for their accounts was that they, when they sell the player, they can book it directly as revenue. So it's the gap between the book value of the player. The player is basically an intangible asset and it gets amortized over his contract. Um, so I just did a kind of explainer about how football transfer accounting works and how, like, there's nothing, there was nothing illegal about the transfers. There was obviously a little bit of gamesmanship with the numbers, but like, um, that is kind of interesting in itself. So I did like a big beta about how football transfer, um, which was great. Uh, so I spent a day like reading about that and wrote an article. Um, so yeah, that, I think that's kind of like an example of something which I find interesting. And, and I think instinctively that doesn't make much sense, but when you lay it out, you kind of think, oh, well, that there probably is a reason it's treated like that in the accounts. And, you know, these players have economic value that last over contract period. So 
it's kind of like buying it you know like it's like developing software or something right so um you know and you so can, and you can fight about to... which cost you capitalize on which you don't but um so yeah, they, they can case... book the book the profit from the sale of the player immediately yeah. and then they they amortize the cost of the salary of the one that they receive they're paying him over a certain yeah and that, years, and that goes through right? the cash flow from investing that goes through cash flow from investing yeah like an investment does yeah um, well, what's the life cycle of a story? Is it literally you wake up in the morning with your 200 emails from the flax and you go through those yeah. 200 and try to, or you have your own idea and then is it done like that, that evening? Are you done? Like, how, how does that, how does that all work? It depends sometimes. So I can give you a few examples. So like sometimes there was a story I wrote about a, um, a European, a Paris listed Luxembourg domiciled company called Solutions 30, who Muddy Waters had been short the company since uh, May 2019. And I, I wrote some stories about them, you know, and unlike for the normal Muddy Waters short, it didn't come with this gigantic 30 page thesis, you know, with all this detail. They just, because in the, you know, in the uh, Europe, you have to disclose your short positions over 5% of the flow. So they, uh, over 0.5% of the flow. So they went to 0.5%. It went on the AMF's website, the, the, the French regulator, and the shares fell at 20% in a day. But there was no reason why. So I started writing some stories about it in, I kind of did some work and started looking at it. And I thought, this is just, it's just very weird business. So I started looking at it back in September 2019. And I did a few stories on it. Nothing really happened. The shares kept going up. Um, and then um, a whole bunch of stuff happened earlier in um in December, and I'd already, I bit throughout that whole period, I'd still be kind of chipping away at it. I, I kind of set away a Friday afternoon, probably um, when I had a free Friday afternoon, which was once every other week. I, I just spent two to three hours, like going on Romanian companies' house and going on and just trying to figure out what the hell was going, what this business was up to. And um, I finally got a story out in May. Which, but I'd be kind of working on it for like a year. So that that was a, uh, but you know, sometimes you find some weird stuff and you're like, okay, well, that's weird. Or they're working with this person who's got a dodgy history, but it's not really, a, it would be a great short thesis, but it's not necessarily like a great FT story, right? So I was looking for, I had to get enough stuff together and, you know, I had to build some sources. I had to try and talk to people who used to work at the company and all that, you know, that and that process could take a very long time. And especially when you're going to publish something about a company that is potentially very negative and can move the share price quite substantially. So, you know, even the, the legal process on that story took, you know, a month. Um, so that's, so that's like a 2000 word story, but then there's some stories I wake up and today I saw that app Harvard, one of the SPACs uh, from February, one of Jeffrey Oven's SPACs, um, they guided down on their 2021 estimates like mega, you know. And as we know with the SPACs, the whole thing is they just have these ridiculous estimates that they're never going to hit. Um, so um, I just did a quick story being like, oh, wouldn't you believe it? Another SPAC has missed its 2021 estimates. Like, what about those 2025 ones? Like, so um, that took an hour to write. So, you know, you get this huge uh, variance. And, and, and then some stories last a lot longer than you ever expect they will and some stories people forget about and i say like obviously only one percent of stories people are reading a year later and that's when you know you've done a good one really i think um or people are going um but yeah so it depends it's a very odd job it's kind of it's very hot off and on so um 
yeah and also normally the time you're working by yourself so it's um yeah yeah. What, what about when you come across something like a wire card? It doesn't have to be wire card particularly, yeah. but it's something like wire card where you really do think that you've got potentially something very, very big. How does that process work out where there's a group of people over an extended yeah. period of time? Well, I think with with wire card, um, you know, you get, you know, like all good journalists talk to investors, right? I talk to people like you, people on the long side, value guys. Um, what what do we just guys. back up a bit next for people who Go aren't on. familiar with what Wirecard is? Let's, let's, okay. let's start there. Just explain the yeah. story. Sure. So Wirecard was a German payments company that was um, to a 25 billion euro market cap. Um, it was a darling of Europe's tech scene it was a vanilla payments company um and um there was always a reputation around it for being a bit dodgy like a very high margin so adian um which is a D dutch payments company it's a very popular stock actually um was one of its competitors but wirecard had much higher margins and was growing at like kind of 30 percent a year um, and, you know, the story always was, well, they're doing payments for kind of adult companies and um, gambling websites. And that's why they can charge much higher margins because they go near businesses that no one else will touch, uh, which obviously already gets questions firing in your head about <laughs> why would you work with those businesses? But anyway, um, we they, they've been since 2015, they've been the subject of quite a lot of speculation from. So, you know, the short sellers have been after it since 2015. And, you know, a lot of stuff didn't really add up about the what the company, the, what it was saying to investors about its technology and, um, you know, and its money flows and how good it was at winning new customers versus, you know, you, they had a payment, let's say as one example, remember they had a payments app, which was just a very vanilla payments app. And um, you open it up app on the app store and it only had like 10 reviews and they were like two star. And then you go on one of their competitors in the UK and it would have 20,000 reviews, right? And, and you just be like, okay, well, clearly something is wrong here. But there was a lot of incidents of like that. And there wasn't really any main, there wasn't a huge smoking gun. It just, it was very incongruous, um, the entire thing. But it was growing at 30% and it had 30% EBITDA margins. And for a lot of fund managers in Europe where we've had GDP growth of basically zero, that was a pretty enticing prospect. So it got a lot of people, a lot of investors were in this thing and it had a very charismatic CEO and, you know, we all know that kind of story. But anyway, so in 2020, in 2019, the FT, after writing about it a bit in 2015 and then leaving it, we began to kind of look at it again. Um, we had some whistleblowers come to us. Um, basically, the company had got so big that it began to have to hire serious people. And when you hire serious people, at a company that's misbehaving, they actually tend to whistleblow. And I think that's kind of one of the issues with fraud. Why a lot of frauds stay very small is because when you get to that 3 billion, you can start hiring people who will blow the whistle. Like if you keep it under a billion market cap, like no one's going to look and no one's going to really care. So, um, Hot tip so, for the fraudsters right there. Keep it under yeah, a billion. Yeah, yeah. No, I think, I think you know, and also the problem is, is you promise growth. So you have to like maintain a low market cap while still growing. Um, um, 
but yeah, so they, um, so we got some whistleblowers and it all kind of snowballed. They accused the FT of marketing. I think they accused us of all sorts. Um, they were a very dastardly business. They were following our journalists. They were hiring ex-Mossad types to cry and take photographs with short sellers they you know they were going to quite extreme lengths for a business to shut down stories um and uh putting a lot of pressure on our journalists and then the german financial watchdog opened up a criminal investigation into the ft as to whether we were mi so we were under like serious legal pressure over and this was a darling of the german stock market so we did a a big story i think it was on january 29th or 30th 2019 after getting some whistleblower stuff the year before. And um, so it kind of took three months to get this story out from what I recall. And the share price fell 40% and it all kind of kicked off. And for the whole year after, we were under this amazing amount of scrutiny and it was kind of ridiculous because I mean, like, you know, if you're gonna manipulate markets then like, you might as well be something in it for you, right? So it was quite, it wasn't really, it was a bit of a weird one. But anyway, so um, uh, by 2020, the company was still saying all was fine, but it got to the point where the the, the, the board of Wirecard, the, the supervisory board said, okay, we're going to do an independent investigation. And PwC did an independent investigation, which left a huge amount of questions over the business. And then Ernst & Young, who had signed off on his accounts the year before, in I think it was June um, of 2020, basically after delaying the accounts, the accounts were getting delayed and delayed and delayed. And they were like, oh, you know, and, and there was a deadline of June 30th. And I think during mid-June, uh, a press release came out saying, you know, they said they had two billion in cash in these two banks in the Philippines, that cash doesn't exist. And it basically turned out that half the business the profitable side of the business just did not exist and it had not existed for 10 years. And actually there was a payments company there, but as we can guess, a payments company is low margin and was actually losing money and it was growing, it wasn't growing. So they basically just made up half the business. Um, the, CIA, the COO, he escaped to, we think Belarus, never to be seen again. Um, he had some interesting ties with uh, some international characters. Um, the CEO is currently in jail, awaiting trial, I believe, um, and the stock is at zero. So um, we were very much uh, vilified by our reporting, but there were definitely times internally, and you know, um, even, even talking with friends about it, where you're like, oh, you know, is this worth the risk for us to keep poking it? Like, are we wrong, right? Like. We could be wrong. Like it's completely, you know, and that happens. Like you get bad sources or um, you get the wrong, you know, and, and Lord knows I've been wrong about some companies. So, um, um, so yeah, I think it was, it was a good, it was a good moment at the FT that day. Um, I mean, never want to see a company go to zero people lose their jobs, et cetera, but the amount of pressure we've been under um, was well, it was kind of a nice release. So yeah. Um, bonkers story. Yeah, and it, I mean, yeah, we could go on about it, but yeah. Well, so. but the, perhaps the most baffling part of the whole thing was the regulator opening a criminal investigation into the FT. That's how did that? How how were they persuaded to do that? Did the company have some sort of in with them? I, I, we 
I, I'm not super au fait with the story. I'm just going to quickly look. It was, um, uh, yeah, it was, um, yeah, so German regulator files complaint on alleged wildcards with manipulation. The German watchdog yeah, filed a criminal complaint against two of our journalists and several short sellers, accusing them of potential market manipulation over the suspected accounting irregularities. I mean, that must be the most legal first paragraph the FT's ever written. <laughs> um, um, so that was on April 16, 2019. Yes, yeah, so um, uh, I, I don't know. You know, um, it, it's hard to say. I think um, in US capital markets, you guys are very lucky to have very healthy, skeptical capital markets. It might not seem like that all the time. And particularly this year, it's felt like it's kind of out of control at times. But at least you have a very healthy short selling community. You have the First Amendment, which means you can't get sued for libel, which is a big problem in Europe. And the UK has some of the most has some of the most aggressive libel law in the world. Like if you're a Russian oligarch and you can't sue in the UK, you will sue in the UK because you've got a very good chance of winning. Um, so um, I think I think with this one, we were just. Um, I, I, someone was talking in someone's ear, big companies, as we know, have political power and somehow um, this came to fruition. Um, and I think it's important to know with European small countries, capital markets as well, is that like the billionaire and upper millionaire class, they, they know all know each other. This isn't like, I always say, to, you know, when we're talking about America, like there's probably an insurance company in Kansas City, that would be like the fifth biggest insurance company in the UK if it was here, right? But I've never heard of it. It's family owned. It takes along. It's doing great, you know. But like America just is so big and so rich on a per capita basis, such a much bigger economy than all these other European economies, that you don't get this kind of um, web of people, of just everyone knowing each other. Everyone's the same dinner parties. They all live in the same two or two in london in, in the uk they all live in the same city but in germany they might all live in munich or berlin or frankfurt and in, in france they all live in paris and holiday in the south of france so um that leads to a lot of kind of people looking the other way with these situations i think more so and and you combine that with just not having as deep a capital markets not having as many short sellers and um having much smaller broker coverage of companies as well um and I, yeah, I think with this one, I think it was just a, it, 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 I, I think we'll, we'll find out more. Dan's book is coming out at some point uh, towards the end of the year. And it's going to, from what I've heard, it's going to be pretty, pretty ex exceptional. But um, yeah, I think the political, it, it was all politics, basically. Um, and, you know, this was the only, you know, Germany has SAP, which is kind of Oracle of Europe, right? But apart from that, like there was no, um, there's no tech heroes in that country. Um, so I think there was an element of trying to defend their one company that was doing, you know, 30% revenue CAGA, you know, as opposed to like Deutsche Bank or whatever. So, and it was also in, in Europe, there is a distrust of Anglo-American capitalism as well. Um, going back to the, I mean, definitely after the financial crisis, you know, German banks bought a lot of that paper that ended up being dog shit. So, um, uh, yeah, I think there's just a general distrust of, you know, they think cap. They, just, they think they think everyone's just coming in with axes to take apart their capital markets. And to be fair, sometimes they're right. Um, but 
I think a lot of the time they're wrong. And so it, it was a combination of things. But yeah, politics and then a suspicion of Western capitalism, I think, or like the way free market Anglo-American capitalism. I think it just combined there to, to go to a ridiculous extreme. So it's a reasonable argument. Sometimes short sellers aren't necessarily always right. They're they're often looking for something that that is spectacular, that is going to get attention, or that there's something that you can sort of imp- insinuate something about, and then mm. uh, somebody with sort of a surface level understanding or looking at it immediately will say, "Yeah, that is that does look wrong." But if you get to know that, you know, I, I can think of examples in the States where well-known hedge fund guys get short and let everybody know about it. And it's just, it's one of those businesses that has a lot of headline risk and they're going to have these spectacular mm. events every now and again. But if you can get in there and sort of say that, I don't want to name any of the names, but I can think of a very sure. specific example. I'm sure we're talking of the same same companies, but yeah. Um, and, you know, there are, there are always things wrong and right about every company, right? And, and the question is whether like the systemic and that they, they verge on criminal or fraudulent and or whether it's just like, you know, their numbers are a bit are going to be weak for a few years, and that's but the actual business is doing fine. Like, um, yeah, and uh, you know, the activist short thing is very. We could talk about that maybe, but it's very interesting part of the market. So, um, and there's some guys who do great work, and there's some guys who do, to be honest, shocking work. So, yeah, it goes both ways. Um, what's your background, Jamie? You, were you trained as a journalist? Is that how you come to be oh, in this position? No, no, no. I had a very, very very odd career so I was um I started out um I went to I was an arts grad so my my what we call undergraduate here in the UK your first degree I did a filmmaking degree so I was a practical filmmaking sort of making films learning about cinema studying cinema um and then when I was doing that I got really into Russian cinema which is right on the kind of tail end of the you know the weird the stuff which you kind of tr- stroke your chin and drink whiskey to and smoke clove cigarettes, you know, and you, you use it to chat to girls, basically. Um, that right. So, yeah, yeah. So I got, I got, I got, I got into that and I went to study uh, Russian studies at UCL, which is um, a, a university here in London. Um, and uh, when I was doing that, I got asked to be in a band uh, by a friend. So I played bass in a band for four years um or three years three years and it was it was quite weird because it was one of those things where my friends I was doing my master's and you know postgrads you're not work the, 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 in the UK the level of work is not the same as your undergrad like you do have time so I thought okay I'll just give it a go like I play basic school so and by the end of my postgrad it just turned into this I was like playing shows like four times a week we were meeting labels we were on the radio we you know we we're doing all of this I was like, okay, well, I've got to give it a go because if it works out, it'll just be awesome. But of course, we the music industry is kind of like a video game. You need to get through each level and there's insta-death. It's like an insta-death video game. <laughs> and, and, and once you don't get through one level, which for, which, for, which for us was not getting signed, but for some bands is not having a successful second album or whatever, um, you just die because you're old news, you have no momentum and you just need to either start again, new project or like leave it. So I left... And I was 24 and I never had a proper job. So I thought I better get on with this. And my dad, you know, was breathing down my neck. Um, so I um, took a job at a, a startup in London, uh, kind of ed, ed tech, I'd say, like education software. Um, that went really well. And it was, it was good, learnt, good, 
good introduction for me for learning about business because you know at a company with i mean we had 60 employees but a lot of those were kind of back end and content so the kind of front out front of office sales and marketing was like 10 and you know in those kind of jobs you're doing everything right you're just you're like you're nominally doing this but if someone needs help putting a powerpoint deck together for the next morning you're up till 2 a.m doing that and so it was it was a good um kind of intro for me for the world of business and while i was doing that i got very interested we were raising some money um and um we met some vcs and i thought oh, this is really interesting these people like go around like talking to people and making judgments and putting their money in and that that's just i never really thought about capitalism like the investing world in that way i actually had no interest in it basically um so i talked to a i went on holiday with a friend who worked at a really famous emerging markets hedge fund here in London called Nevsky. Um, guy called Martin Taylor ran it. Um, and he's in hedge fund market wizards. I think he's one of the interviewees in there. He, um, my friend was telling me about his job and he was, I was like, oh, you know, what's, what's it like working there? You know, he'd, he'd done the opposite of me. He had a very traditional white collar, you know, grad scheme at a famous investment house and done four years and gone to a hedge fund. Um, and he was like, oh, well, you know, I just look at companies, analyze them, and I make judgments. And, you know, it's, it's very varied. I get to travel, you know. And I was like, oh, that sounds actually like quite an interesting job. Like, I never really, I didn't really. I, so he was like, oh, I'll give you five books to read. So he gave me five books to read, um, which were kind of Guy Spears' book, Howard Marks' book, um, David Ironhorn's book. I think the Snowball, the Warren Buffett bi biography. Um, I'm sure you know. I'm sure you've read all of them. And uh, and it just kind of and, and I read these and I was like, oh, this is fascinating. I had that kind of eureka moment. I think when anyone discovers the world of investing and, and finance. So I just spent three years teaching myself. Um, I did a, 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 a. We have a in the UK. We have a kind of junior a CFA run junior CFA. So it's not CFA one, but it's called the IMC Investment management certificate um and it's basically the cfa one but you have to do 100 hours versus 300 hours revision basically um so i did that in my free time and i wanted to go i was kind of looking for junior analyst jobs um but i was struggling to get hired because my cv was just too odd um i was getting through a few levels and then i get to the kind of fourth stage and they'd be like oh it's you versus a guy who's got like did maths at cambridge you know like you know it's kind of and i was like fair enough you know i would hire them over me so <laughs> um uh so i applied for the job at the at fd alphaville and i was very lucky that izzy looked at my cv and thought well this guy actually he seems to know what he's talking about but he's also got very odd and interesting cv so um i got hired and I've, I've been there for three and a half years so this is my first ever journalism job so compared to a lot of people the, and i and, and i came from the finance side rather than the journalism side and I, and I think that's kind of helped me a lot because um I had I had like these not I wouldn't say my core knowledge is like my technical knowledge is incredible like I don't know anything about like quant stuff you know I know you had Ben on your podcast like I don't understand any of that like Corey you know that world but um you know my, my core knowledge is quite good so I, I I so I think like I've just tried to build a niche for myself for writing about that stuff rather than being a you know, there are some journalists at the FT who are brilliant at getting scoops and calling people up and like they've got an amazing contact book and like they know everyone. And I'm the I'm the kind of guy who like pulls up the quarter and like sees what's weird and that's my story. So I think that's always been the angle where I've come from rather than talking to people. But of course, also talk to people, but just not to the quite not like pounding the phone, you know. Um 
so yeah, that that's I said that was my very odd. That was my twenties, and so now I'm in my thirties. So yeah, that's um, I've been in journalism three and a half years. So yeah. So, so in that in that period of time, what what are the sort of biggest uh, stories that you've uh, identified? Have you been able to pull anything out of just uh, looking at the looking at the reporting? So I think um, Solutions Thirty, which is that uh, the company I mentioned earlier. I, I, if you want a fun one to read about. Um, I mean, I still remember when, um, you know, Muddy Waters are short, so it's, it's going to be worth looking at it. And, and also everyone was trying to figure out why. And I talked to a lot of good short sellers in San Francisco, that kind of the San Francisco short seller crew, um, and they um, they couldn't figure it out. So, you know, they were like, it looks weird, but I can't really see. So um, I remember one first story was just a kind of overview of the business. It's a man in a van outsourcer. So it goes around installing broadband connections, electric car charging stations, uh, gas smart meters, really last mile, low margin, low growth business, but it had better margins than all the people it was supplying. And um, it was growing at 60% a year and it was a roll up. So it was going around basically buying lots of mum and pup stores in Europe, plugging them into their big contracts and so it, it was like I, you know it was a bit of a weird one just on like stepping back um but i, I started a kind of overview of the business and i was looking through their 2017 accounts and they had like excel tables you know in the kind of footnotes for the accounts where you have your receivables balance like you they had the excel errors still in the numbers you know so they had an even like and this was in their English accounts and their French accounts were slightly better, you know, but then you go back to the 2013 French accounts and it was like a scan of a document through a printer, but it looked like it'd been scanned like five times. So you couldn't really read like half the text, you know, and this was a company with a 1.2 billion euro market cap. Like, so I was, I, you know, I was like, okay, this is just, so I did a story being like, look at this weird company it's got, and it had like a hundred subsidiaries, you know, had a subsidiary in in, in uh, one of the French uh, Caribbean islands. You know, in North Africa and in, in Eastern Europe, and um, you know, it's just a man and a van company who operate in five countries. Like it should not be this complicated either. Um, so I did a kind of overview, and then I spotted after I wrote about the company, the company started removing all their annual reports from their website and replacing them with better versions. Like as I was. Because obviously, with, when you're writing a negative story about a company, and I do think this is something to be able to understand, there's a lot of toing and froing between you and the company being like, hi, I'm writing a story about you guys. Here are my questions. Here's the kind of cut and jib of the story, like what it's going to be about. Do you have any comment? Do you want to answer my questions? And, you know, sometimes they just don't reply and then get very angry when the story is published. Sometimes they reply at length and try and confuse you and keep you like asking more questions so um i had a bit of back and forth with the company and but as, as i was having the back and forth they started pulling these annual reports off their website and luckily i kind of say I, I kind of suspected they might do that so i had them all saved so um i went back and looked and i noticed in their 2017 annual report that they were audited by grant thornton at the time and at the beginning of the annual report they had the audit letter like on the first yeah, i know most companies don't have it right at the back of the annual report but they had it kind of right at the front and I noticed that it looked like the English version of the audit letter had been 
translated by them and like made in a word document like it didn't have the same logo as the grant thought had a different logo the text was kind of skewy it was like cut off at some you know like it basically looked like they like papier like cut bits out in like printed it out cut it out put it on a piece of paper then scanned it again to make it look like it was a scan um and they also copy and pasted the signature of the grant thought and auditor over to the english letter Right. So I was like, and of course, like, if you want to get an English version of your audit letter, surely just say to your auditor, hey, can you just do a translate? Well, you know, we've done a translation. Here it is. Can you just like send it over? And they'll say, I mean, I doubt they'll charge you a fee, but they might go, yeah, that's 100 euros or, you know, or, I mean, or whatever it is. Like, so the fact they went to this length was just very odd. Right. So, um, I think that's when I kind of knew that this business, you know, and I, and I don't think I mentioned earlier, but what happened was that in last December, an anonymous short report came out about the company accusing them of laundering money for the mafia. And then um, Ernst & Young refused to sign off on their accounts um, in May, citing, um, I can't remember the exact language, but citing um, uh, related party transactions with members of management that they couldn't verify the substance of um and the share price went down like 80 percent on the next morning um so yeah i think that was a good one and um i've also been following tesla for a long time um but but not on the not on the not so much on the kind of news side of it although the news side of it is super fun but more on like the accounts like what they do in their accounts you know like how come this business um like last quarter like how did tesla Tesla's margins go up 300 basis points while shipping costs and like raw material costs were going up exponentially, right? How like, did that happen? I don't know, but it's worth asking the question. And the good thing is like an, Alf an Alphaville story might just be like, what is this? Like, how did this happen? Like, that is just odds. Like in anyone, you ask anyone, any auto analyst, like, auto margins shouldn't move that much quarter on quarter and for tesla they move a lot um um so um yeah you can ask the question as well which is one of the good things about writing a blog versus and you, and you that's not a news story a news story that's not you know tesla's margin in the news story it is tesla reported better gross margins than expected which helped their help them beat their earnings per share time you know that that's that but, but you know the alpha will story be like well how did that happen so um yeah so i've been writing i mean tesla's been i mean i was very i mean i still kind of you know i'm still skeptical of the business but obviously it's been completely ruinous for those who have had money on that direction um but it's a weird one that you know i always think um it's uh that story is uh it's still ongoing and it's not finished but um yeah, it, it's 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 kind of endlessly fascinating, and I do, and and you know, we know we know now in 2017 that the company was two weeks away from going bankrupt. So like, no one was actually really wrong about that. It's just that there was no 8K about that at the time, and Elon was going around having dinner saying that. But um, you know, so like, not like it, it's 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 a, it's a it's a fascinating one, um, and obviously you get a lot of fan mail about that company, which is always quite fun as well. So um, it's a very polarizing so, company. It, it's I've had yeah. with people who are just friends and family who have put a lot of money into it. And they, they, you know, the, I understand their perspective on it, that saving the world, it's, it's an EV, yeah. all of these sort of, and Elon's a visionary and all of those sort of things. And I just have difficulty reconciling the account. So that's where 
from quarter to quarter. That that's that's sort of my my stumbling block. But I have gone back to collapses from the eighties and looked at journalists interviewing the people who were perpetrating mm. the fraud at the time and listen to some of the questions that they have asked. And it's interesting that they might ask 10 questions and six or seven might be just, you know, what's your relationship to Pinochet in Chile? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. he's a bad guy and that's a bad thing happening, but that's not the, that's not what's going to ultimately destroy this company. It's the, it's the payments between the related party transactions yeah. and the debt that's going to sink this company and the yeah. fact that it's, it's a fraud that's being perpetrated. When you're sort of on these stories where uh, they're powerful people who are bad dudes um, and they're interested in protecting their uh, their fraud, they want that to continue going on. They don't yeah. want to get caught. Do you ever get worried that there are potentially repercussions? Like Wirecard? That, that, that yeah, I mean, Wirecard, you know, Dan... Dan um you know, the guy like floats about like nothing's going on, you know, I don't, you know, I would have been a nervous wreck, like, like, you know, I don't, some people just have the constitution for that. And, you know, you see, um, you know, you see Jim Chanos and Carson talk about that, um, uh, saying, you know, like there's a, you need a certain constitution in this business. But I think as a journalist, it's even worse because, in it, you're going to be the main conduit where this stuff comes out through, right? So in a way, like the most pressure on you, um, but at the same time, yeah, Wirecard was very exceptional. But I would say, you know, with um, Solutions 30, you know, the mafia stuff, it's not been, it's not proved. The company's denied it, of course, and I should be very clear about that. But those are very serious allegations. And as a journalist covering it, you do think a little, I mean, I live by myself, you know, there is a little bit of you which always goes, well, should I still be covering this? Like, is the payoff, like, is my salary versus the, you know, it, like, is that? Is that the risk reward there you just can get a bit skewed at times i think um you know um even if i was getting paid mega money the risk reward would still be a bit skewed so um yeah in, like in it's, some um, sense you're the, you're the record right so you 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 set the record whereas chanos is chanos is a player in the game yeah, and he's exactly, allowed to yeah. be wrong about certain things yeah. but the record has to be set yeah. correctly yeah. so there's an expectation that and that they're obviously they're interested in having that record the bad guys interested in having the record written the way that they want the record yeah. written yeah exactly yeah um and I do think the kind of the kind of the smokescreen. I think people do underestimate the kind of the gaslighting in ju journalists have to face from companies at times. Like it is, like when I took the job, I'd never been a journalist, and I still remember like my first story, which would have pissed off a company. I actually read about this. Um, you've, you've probably heard of this: the Zion Oil and Gas. It's like a, oh, it's Zion, a, it's a yeah, Zion Oil, yeah, yeah. So I did. I, I read about that. That was one, that was one of the that's the first company I did a lot of writing on. So in like 2018, I did they knew well and it was just the most ridiculous it's still going which blows my mind but anyway um they got a new well i don't want to go into that it makes me sad think about it but yeah, anyway so um but i wrote about this you know i did my first story was this kind of long primer about the business all their failed wells you know john brown has had this vision of oil in israel and you know the kind of story it was a mad 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 story, but um, it's literally Dan, a, you, you say vision, but it's literally like a biblical vision, a biblical oil, vision, yeah. yeah, like a religious vision, conviction, yeah. and, he, <laughs> and he wasn't taking anything either. So, um, and um, uh, well, you know, well, who knows? But um, uh, I remember I remember writing the story and Dan being like, Okay, well, you're gonna email the company, and like, I was, I was like, I'm gonna email the company, you know, I was like, Shit, that's like, it's quite scary, you know. So, 
like that took a lot of you getting used to like and, and now and now, and now it's fine but i do think it, it is quite nerve-wracking at times you know that that element of you know and like you can you know when it, and as you know when it comes to accounts something might look dodgy and but then actually there's quite a good explanation for it and the cfo will tell you and i'll be like actually you know what you know and you're like okay actually i don't have a story like i've written there are, i've got 20 stories in my archive which i've never published because the cfo actually came up came talked to me and said i think you've got the wrong end of the stick here jamie and i went back and i went actually you know what i think he's right like so you've always really prepared for that um but um yeah yeah it's um yeah it, it's just a that, that's part of the oddness of the job at times is kind of having these fights with multinational corporations <laughs> and like you're just a little journalist sitting in london you know so um. i mean I've, I've got some uh empathy for you because i've been on i've been on both sides i've been on that side where you're preparing the accounts and you're trying to put it together and it's not yeah. you know equally it's complex putting them together yeah. and you, you even if in good faith efforts to, to to put them together it's entirely possible to make some sort of error or mistake in that and then to have someone pick up on that and then come back yeah, and it's yeah. it, they're difficult to understand there are a lot of moving parts in the accounts it's not quite as mathematical as people might think it is externally. There's a, there are some judgment calls and some gray areas yeah. that reasonable people can reasonable, honest people can yeah. disagree on. So it's, it's a, it's a difficult, it's a difficult uh, process. I'm sure. I mean, uh, luckily just... my dad, my dad was an auditor. So I do, I do, <laughs> I do get, I do get to talk. Luckily I do have that in my family. So I can call him up and say like, what do you think about this? And he'll go, uh, I'm not, you know, yeah. You know, that looks all right to me, you know, like instinctively. But so I do, I'm kind of lucky to have that to, to fall back on. Um, and he always says to me as well, like, you won't believe some of the discussions I've had in boardrooms, like about accounts, like it's just, it'll blow your mind, you know, um, when he was doing them back in the day. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, just, to, just as a final question, what's the, what's the ultimate goal? Do you, for do, do do you as a journalist do you seek to become an opinion type like a, a name that sells newspapers it, do you want to become a paul krugman or, or how, where, where i don't know like i guess like i mean the, the traditional way would be you know you kind of uh you work as a reporter you get a reputation for yourself you might get a more senior reporting role where you have to write slightly less but you do more in-depth stories and my friend um and my colleague rob smith here at the ft he he now is in this position where he's he's doing kind of very deep stories on two or three things and he's kind of earned his stripes reporting on the bond market and ca capital raising and, and now he's now he's doing that and, and then maybe you become a manager and you're still doing a bit of writing but you're managing a team of reporters and you move up the tree but um yeah i think i think that that would be amazing and um but for me as well like you know my career so far has been quite so i i'm i don't tend to think about the ends that much like i'm just like i'm very happy doing my job and it's like super i mean i get to spend like all day reading and learning and like talking to people like you and like it's like i mean i've got to i mean i've got to talk to people like you know when i first started about learning about finance if someone had told me that howard marks would email me i mean i just you know so like it is kind of like there's a kind of joy in that as well and like getting picked the brains of like some of the smartest people i think in the in you know in in markets at least so um yeah like i'm just i'm just enjoying the job and hopefully people enjoy right reading my articles and um that seems to be the case at the moment so yeah like, yes. long may it continue yeah I, I certainly do uh enjoy reading them um jamie if 
people want to get in contact with you, they've got the hot scoop. Where do they send it? Well, or how do they follow along scoop, with what you're doing? Um, so I don't tweet my articles too much because I have that weird British thing where I don't like boasting, but maybe I should do that more. You but no, that. Um, yeah, so I, I've, got, I've, got a, I've got a Twitter account, uh, which is um, at AJB underscore Powell. Um, uh, so there, I'm, I mean, I mainly just kind of shit posts. So it's kind of, I mean, it's, it's more just like for fun and taking the mickey out of people than like actually like, you know, I don't pin myself too much. Um, uh, and you can message it. My, my DMs are open. So, um, I mean, I'd say if you've got a story where you're worried about people finding out that you told me, you like, DM me and say, hey, I've got a story and we can, I'll give you my mobile and we can talk on a more secure way of talking um i'm also at uh, jamie.powell at ft.com so easy to remember but yeah that's my email address so and i i'd love any any story which your listeners go i wish someone was fucking writing about this well this is really interesting why isn't anyone covering this like email me like those are that is my wheelhouse so yeah do email do email or get in touch like i'm always always love to chat so well, that sounds good uh jamie powell ftlville thank you very much cheers tobias thank you for your time cheers.